Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and using Apple's tools when you're not using Apple's tools. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Oh, doing pretty good. Got the... Oh, got a weird project headed my way. Yeah. And uh, it's one of those things that I'm kind of uniquely suited to do because it involves <laughs> a massive amount of planning and a tiny amount of development. <laughs> that, that is a very Joe kind of project. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, this is for one of my existing FileMaker customers who also has a web app built-in PHP that connects to their database. So they've got a, a FileMaker database they use basically three different types of users. There's the office staff who run the business. There are the teachers who are on site. So this is a childcare facility. The teachers who are on site using iPads and laptops with kind of a, a restricted version of the system. And then there are parents or families of users who have to log in and do all kinds of required registration stuff, stuff that the state makes us collect. Like it basically this entire website is an abstraction layer on top of a bunch of forms that are kind of notoriously difficult to fill out <laughs> and really unclear about what you're supposed to be adding. So we made a interface for that. This is the same project that I was working on upgrading them from the old PHP API to the new FM data API. Right. And I reached out to them to schedule some work on the servers to get FileMaker server updated, get macOS onto a stable version, just make sure all, every, all of that stuff was up and working. And in the process, they, they had another mini project for me. And because they're childcare, but they're childcare at school facilities, they are really in this unknown state of are we going to go back to school in the fall? And if so, how? And how does that happen? Now, the district is telling them, you're absolutely going back to school no matter the what. And that no matter the what really bugs me because that <laughs> seems to imply, like, we don't care if your kids are dead. Yeah. We're going to have school. But uh, we're operating under the assumption that we are going back to school. And they laid out six different possible things that could happen. So two situations, each with three scenarios. <laughs> um, and essentially my part of the project as of now is to basically do the entire, you know, kind of discovery and planning part of each of those projects as if they were six separate projects. There's some overlap <laughs> between them, but uh -huh. there, there really isn't. Like they're, they require six different solutions. Yeah. So I've got to, I guess the reason we have to do this is because we won't know until July 31st, which of these six options we have. And it has to be done by August 7th. So we've got a week to do all of the development and testing and deployment for this stuff, which is not very much time. Like even the smallest one of these options is going to be, not insignificant amount of code. So my process this week is going to be starting tomorrow to take an entire day tomorrow to just spend an hour on each option and document how I would build it. And it's going to be interesting because I need to try to make myself consider these as independent as possible. So I have to kind of read, I have to kind of avoid the tendency to make fancy abstraction stuff and do this like the, the coolest way possible. This just has to get done. And it can be as sloppy as possible, like whatever I have to do to get it done because it's never going to be used again. And if it is used again, we can look at kind of refactoring it into a, a bigger feature. But it'll be an interesting challenge of like, just get, just get the choices made. I mean, really what this is, is customers are going to have to re-log in and decide what they want to do. Make a bunch of choices with the registrations that they already have on file. Do you want to drop out? Do you want to keep registered? Do you want to change your registration to this? Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to take advantage of these additional things that we're offering? So it's basically like a page that has to intercept or sit in between the regular login screen and the dashboard that users land on. 
and then how we work that data into an existing database where we've got registrations that are already done, uh, a monthly invoicing process that's built on those registrations and enrollments, and how do we keep that system in place but add new transactions to it to offset those invoices. So it's, it's technically a ledger-based system. So we just add charges and um, payments against those until we can get to the right amounts. So charges and credits. So it's going to be tricky, but it it'll make for a really interesting week. Unfortunately, it's the same week that DevCon is happening. And so I won't oh. be able to attend too many of those conferences or uh, sessions, but I did register for three of them that I'm going to try to catch. But uh, this would be actually the first time I've ever gotten to see like a DevCon keynote aside from, you know, the, I don't think they've posted keynotes online before. They posted some of the sessions online, but I don't ever remember seeing a keynote huh. presentation. I think you're right because very often the keynote contained NDA material. Yeah. Like super secret stuff coming yeah. next year. But they've been much more public in recent years about the roadmap and the kinds of things that they were doing. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So hopefully I'll get to see some of that stuff. And then this project, um, it's an interesting bit of timing because we're, you know, we're working full steam ahead on FM comparison to try to get that out the door. So I basically on July 31st, I have to shut down FM comparison for a week and focus full time on this other project. And then, uh, once those things, once we ship the beta and the school project is done, then I can start dusting off retrospective timelines because I want to get some updates out this fall for that. And that's going to take, I don't know what that's going to take. <laughs> um, I don't know how much I can redo in Swift UI 2 or how much I need to change. I don't know if I can replace my UI kit views with Swift UI stuff yet. Uh, I really just want to start with more about can I rebuild what I've done so far with the newer features in Swift UI 2 to make it more stable and less buggy and then ship that version out and then start working on some of the more visual timeline stuff. Um, and then also the web, the web XR stuff, which I'm not working on, but constantly thinking about. <laughs> so yeah, eager to get back to that as well. So the last couple of weeks have been more work on FM comparison. So I pretty much finished up everything related to the detail cards as kind of a top level entity and then started working on specific cases. Uh, so pretty much everywhere we use the detail card is using the same layout, except for one, which is script steps, which has an additional section of stuff that we, Dave was talking about last episode about you know, generating the data for that. And I worked on the UI for that over the last couple of weeks and got that mostly done as well. There's still some things we want to change about it with some new icons and how the, uh, how the rows line up on either side. And now I'm working on what we're calling the organization layouts, which are basically a couple of categories in FileMaker, like scripts and layouts where you can have a, a dialogue window where you can reorder things. So obviously you can reorder scripts in any order that you want. And we want to be able to present a view of here's what your order was in the old layouts and here's what your order was in the new or in the new system and compare those side by side and figure out where you deleted stuff or moved stuff or or even we're not currently focusing on renaming because this data also has its own diff view elsewhere. But mm -hmm. this system is a little bit different because we have one set of data with two kind of scrolling regions and we need to be able to we're not going to keep them in sync because that way lies madness <laughs> but we do want to be able to highlight changes from one side and see the changes on the other side so we've got kind of a sloppy but effective implementation of you can click on a row and it, if the associative row is not on screen it will scroll onto screen so you can see that as well it'll highlight the rows on both sides and there's still some logic i need to figure out about that but as far as i know these organization layouts are the last big features for the beta and 
at least from a, di a diff data standpoint. There are still some other screens, mm -hmm. like like the registration and stuff like that. But uh, I think we're getting close to shipping this thing. It looks like we got what ten days to get it out the door. Um, actually, almost two weeks because DevCon isn't till the fourth. Okay. So we still have fourteen days. Well, I have ten days. Okay. <laughs> As of July thirty first, I I am not available for any of this at all. That's okay. That those week. those last days will be for web pages and things. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Not unless you want me to disrupt, like derail the lives of like fifteen hundred families, which I think I would get killed for. <laughs> I don't. I don't get all of your time, Joe. I I understand that. And honestly, mm -hmm. by during DevCon, my brain is not going to be thinking, "Hey, let's add this new feature to FM comparison right now." Yeah, yeah. I just got to take notes. Yep, It'd be a good time to capture stuff and see what people think. Yeah. So, what have you been working on? Oh my goodness. Um. So I finally solved the notarization issue on the Mac OS version. Okay. Um, when you're trying to get an app notarized by Apple from Xcode, it's pretty straightforward. It's a couple of menu options, a couple of button presses, and if your app meets all the requirements, it gets notarized and you can spit the thing out and it's happy. Like, pretty easy. Um, if you're not using Apple's tools to build your app, you don't get access to all of Apple's really cool tools for submitting for notarization. Mm. Um, and to start with, I couldn't even get the thing built properly. Because th this is the problem that I described a couple of episodes ago, where... I would build the app, and as the last step of building the app, I would copy the files for our UI into the app package. Mm -hmm. And this works great on Windows. And on Mac, it totally breaks the signing. Because during the build process, they build the thing completely, then sign it, and then did the copy files step. Hmm editing the application package after the thing was signed. And so Mac OS was just throwing up errors all over the place going, this is no good. So I couldn't sign it appropriately, which meant I couldn't build against the hardened runtime that notarization requires. Um, those two things are tied together. So finally put together a, a really detailed email with a really simple test project sent it to Microsoft support and that got me a really quick response that was like, okay, first problem is don't use that after build step thing pretty much for anything. <laughs> um, Can we just talk about how you got a response back? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's, it's fantastic. I so jealous. The, the support, I, I mean, I've said it before, but the kind of support experience I get using Microsoft's developer tools, which I do not pay for, is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, they have periodically given me answers that I did not want, did not like, or did not agree with, but I got answers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's great. So this guy pointed me to the official best practice way of doing this, which is a separate little XML chunk in the project definition file that says copy these files from here to here. Okay. And that process finishes. This is basically sending a command to the MS build application itself during the build process. And that all finishes before the digital signing occurs. Nice. So that got that in the right spot. And then I promptly went ahead and added another after build script step. Um, which I'm thinking about moving. But in general, what this one does is this actually runs a command line app that builds a disk image for the newly built FM comparison and shoves the application into it. Mm -hmm. So that basically builds the installer. 
Um, uh, there's also some fun in there where there are some entitlements that are required to be able to use .NET with the hardened runtime. That's not exceptionally well documented anywhere. Um, yeah. So then you get to the process of like, okay, I have an application. It's in the installer. How do I send this in for notification or notarization? And that's basically five separate command line operations. So you can't just send the DMG to Apple. It's got to be a zipped file in a particular format. So command one, build the submission package. Command two, submit for notarization. So you send that up and you get back a little response. And that takes a little bit. Right now it's taking like five minutes to get the app notarized. Okay. And two, two and a half to five minutes. Um, during that time, I've got a looping thing that requests an update on the notarization status. So I don't have to sit there and watch my email for the email notification that says it's done. You can proceed success or failure. Um, and once I, now that I've got this done, I, it should be pretty good as far as continuous successes. I'm not anticipating major problems getting the app notarized now that I've got the process working. <clears throat> so that checks for success. When the success occurs, interestingly enough, I don't actually have to download the notarized app from Apple. Huh. The app is notarized, which basically involves Apple storing on their server a thing that says this particular app with all these digital signature information is valid. But what I can do is there's a notarization receipt that Apple's got, and I can staple that to the application. And when you do, that means that if somebody is online and downloads your app and then goes offline and then tries to launch it, the app still knows it's notarized. Hmm. So instead of having to download the app, I just have to do a, micro update to the app that fixes its notarization knowledge and then the fifth step validates the final results says okay look at this app is this app notarized and stapled and that returns a success and it's basically done so me being me <laughs> i once i had all of this working all these all these steps in sequence i built a filemaker database that would run them all one after another with little fields and timestamps. So basically I make a new record, fill in the version number. And with the version number, it knows how to locate all of the files that it needs to talk to for purposes of notarization. And so it's basically one button in visual studio to build the app and one button in a FileMaker database to do the submission all the way through to the end. Now, this might actually pick up a couple of extra steps in the future, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, one of the options is I can auto-grab that version number. So that version number is coming out of a plist in the project directory. So I can add a step at the beginning where when I make a new record, it will automatically grab the current version number written exactly the way I've got it. Which is probably the biggest location of possible failure right now is I fat finger that version number. So auto grab the version number. Two, there's a couple of extra files that are left sitting around when I'm done that I don't really need. And they're just going to be messy on my desktop. So I can add a step to remove the intermediate products and just be left with this is the thing that you upload to the server for distribution. And honestly, I can add a step that just does the upload. It doesn't, mm -hmm. that won't be enough to make the version update system tell people there's a new version. That requires editing in some other places, which I could automate, but I'm not nearly ready to go there because that would involve release notes and things of that nature. But I could easily see this database getting a field for release notes. And I press a button and it builds the XML file, does the full notarization. And when it's done, it updates the, the release stuff. I'm probably not ever going to get quite that far because 
I've also got a Windows version. You know, I'm just thinking if you want to keep abusing FileMaker, <laughs> you could, uh, with the data API and the fact that container data doesn't count against your quota, you could build your entire auto update server in FileMaker and just have your apps check that REST API for a new version. I'm not saying you should do this. Darn it, Joe. You definitely could. <laughs> That may be a fun blog post. This is not a good project for right now, but maybe after DevCon, <laughs> that would be a fun little blog post. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is that I've basically already got all of the code for doing version checking and allowing people to download and update a new version written in C Sharp mm -hmm. um, because I wrote it for the Windows version of FM Perception. So I don't necessarily want to completely rewrite that code to hit a different kind of API running in a different way. Um, there are also potentially port issues there. If I mm -hmm. use the same update server as and, and, uh, and such as FM Perception, then anybody who's got the gaps open in their firewall to be able to successfully run FM perception is already set up for FM comparison. I don't have to say, Oh, but if you're running FM comparison, you also have to do this. Mm -hmm. Cause yeah, like I said, not a good idea, just <laughs> a possible idea. Well, see, the it problem could, is you presented it to me and now I've got to think about it. I mean, it could be a good way to, to, you know, get resources for your files. So if you've got a file maker database that needs a bunch of offline web files, that could be an mm -hmm. interesting way to retrieve them just right out of a container field and unzip them. So for quite a while, I was very worried about notarization. It was one of my biggest outstanding problems. I was even concerned for a while that at least during beta, I was going to have to release it unnotarized. And now that's not only not an issue, but it's just simple. And nice. that's a huge weight off my chest. Um, next big thing was I got a big speed bump. Um, and basically I deferred notating exactly what had changed about a particular element. Like if you renamed a field, actually building the data that tells the UI how to display what changed about the field, I pushed that off so that it's no longer part of the comparison process. So initially, when you would say, compare these two chunks of XML, it would do the comparison and then figure out how to display all the data before letting you do anything. And I said, I don't really need all of that. And if the thing that I'm looking for in here is one thing out of 500, I don't, I'm never going to need to generate the data for the other 499. And so I said, don't do that right now wait until somebody asks to see what changed about this object and then figure out the annotation, which takes less than a 10th of a second. So is this happening when you select a category or when you select a specific item? When you select a specific item. Okay. So our item list is still being created and our category yep. is just still being created. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Um, because I have to know, I have to know which objects changed. I just haven't detailed exactly what about the objects changed until you click on the item and it spits it out. Now, this may cause a problem further down the line when we say, um, you know, we have multi-select and things like that. If I want to select 50 items and then it's got to generate the data, A, I can still do it multi-threaded, but... That yeah. may slow it down, but when I changed this code, I literally put in a top-level um, flag in the code where I can just change, defer, change generation until later to false, and it'll start happening at the beginning again. Yeah, the more I work with the app, though, the more I'm convinced that we don't need or should have a multi-select feature. I think we should just build our item list to be the table of contents type of UI for the detail view. So you yeah. can build good keyboard shortcuts and make it really easy and fast to navigate that and just have a simple detail view that can load the data really quickly. Yeah. 
In, in general, I agree with you. But if it came about that we had mm-hmm. to change that, it's one Boolean and I'm done. Um, that's saving about 30% of the comparison time, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And then it also means the bigger the XML, the bigger the savings. Yeah. Like huge projects with lots of changes will would see a big difference from that. It's just the users never will because I never showed them the slow version. Um, uh, also fixed a big weird bug in the Mac OS multi-window support. <laughs> so <laughs> Joe likes this one. It's a, the Mac OS version is a official document based app. And each of these windows is supposed to run independently. And we had this weird thing happening where if you opened two windows and then told each window to load XML, or rather you told the first window to load XML, the second window's progress bars would start going. And if you somehow, and it was weird, if you got to the point where you could actually look at a DDR in, or a chunk of XML in both windows and you clicked on an item in the one, it would display in the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't actually have multiple windows. We had two copies of the exact same window. And that was not the way we wanted it to go. So yeah. hunting around all over the place and eventually found that I had literally explicitly coded it to do this. <clears throat> Thanks, Dave, for the past. <laughs> Well, it was tied up in trying to make sure that I would, in the future, be able to open multiple windows and have them share the same data. Mm -hmm. And once I got to there, I stopped working on that feature. I was like, proof of concept. This is not a version one thing. We're going to move on. But that code was still there. And so it would basically automatically link together every single window you created. And all I had to do was comment out two lines of code and it stopped happening. <laughs> so, yay? Yeah. Yeah, so for the current design, we should basically be able to do everything in a single window for a specific uh, comparison. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of places where we would might want new windows would be like our registration screen or licensing or help. Things that don't, they're more specific to the app than the document that you're working on the settings screen gets a little fuzzy because the settings some of our settings could affect the current diff right like a good example would be dark mode if you open the settings and enable dark mode that should obviously affect the current window you're in so we'll have to kind of figure out how to architect that yeah in concept i think i think i know how to make that happen but right now they're all completely independent uh completely rewrote the script diffing engine for dealing with script steps because I found just one weird little bug that led me down a horrifying rabbit hole. And basically it was one particular script where when it was comparing side by side, basically it's trying to take these disparate little chunks, these little steps and line them up side by side as associated items so that it can highlight what changed from one if line to another if line or something like that. These two different set variables are right next to each other so you can see them and see what's different. And I had a spot where a line of code was getting lined up with a comment. And I spent literally a couple of hours looking at the code, poking at the code, trying to figure out how this process was associating these two things and couldn't find it and the issue there was the logic was very very complicated and it had just become unmaintainable i i couldn't it was broken and i couldn't fix it and that didn't mean it wasn't fixable it was just the code was too much and so ended up basically ground up rewriting the thing not fm comparison just this little script step part and it's kind of recursive at this point. Um, it looks at the whole script and then finds steps that are unedited 
and uses those as a skeleton for the structure. It's like, regardless of what else happens, these lines match up. And then in the gaps in between where things have been edited, it then does basically the same process all over again, except it's not looking at the content of the script step. It's just looking at what the step is. So is it an if? Is it a set variable? Is it an end loop? And so it then finds these and associates, finds the, the closest matching pattern there, lines those up, and then fills in the gaps with everything else that it can't match. And it actually works really, really well. Nice. It's very maintainable. It's a little hard to understand. It was hard to understand while I was writing it. But it's easy to understand while you're looking at it. Just because of the way that it does things so simply. The multiple passes are a little weird, but but in each pass, the logic is very simple. Do these match? Do these not match? Done. Um, so that's sweet. Yeah. Something else on the script steps was uh, uh, a little interesting digression was handling the indenting of script steps. Uh-huh. Because you can just keep using ifs and loops and script steps that cause additional levels of indenting you can make some very complicated very deep scripts and other places in the app so far we didn't have that much complexity but with scripts it started to get ridiculous and dave made a script in the the demo data called a torture test which was a really good name for what <laughs> he made me do <laughs> But we ended up, basically Dave would just calculate the number of indent levels and pass that to me with the data. So I would get an object and say, this should be indented this many times. So it has no awareness of anything around it. Each one of these rows is being rendered independently. But we, first I tried to write a really clever way of doing things and I just couldn't get my clever approach to work. But essentially, we, Dave helped me with a function, but we wrote a function that would take in the value and a number and insert that value in n number of divs, each one with padding applied. So we basically say, here's a div, put this in as many more of you as I say. And it's, it's a ridiculous hacky workaround, but it totally works. <laughs> yeah, that was partially tied up in a, weird uh tailwind yeah yeah because my my initial idea was just to take a base padding value and multiply it by that but basically tailwind only had certain levels of padding defined and up to i think it was 64 points of padding and we needed more than that and i looked at like i could extend tailwind to define additional levels of padding but that's just going to add tons and tons of additional classes that we really don't need to add for this one feature. Um, in, in addition, like adding, you know, 120 points of padding to an object, that's a weird thing to ask Tailwind <laughs> to do. <laughs> yeah, you start looking at FileMaker data in a web view and weird things can happen. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the torture test is doing seventeen or eighteen levels of indent, um, but there's no particular reason it couldn't go deeper. We're eventually yeah. going to run out of screen real estate, but that's yeah. a whole separate problem. And my last little bit of fun, and honestly, there was a bunch of other stuff that isn't worth talking about, but um, was custom menus. Custom menu sets, custom menus, and custom menu items. So, quick digression. Uh Whoever at FileMaker named these things, shame on you. (laughs) You you named these bad, and they're confusing, and I don't like you. (laughs) End of the digression. It was was added a while ago. So, um, So, custom menus contain custom menu items custom menu items don't have any independent existence outside of custom menus 
So there's not really any code sharing between these custom menu items. But a custom menu set contains references to custom menus. And deleting the custom menu doesn't delete the reference. You get left with this custom menu set that contains an item that just says missing menu. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so trying to get all of this to work and custom menus and custom menu sets are one of those spots where order is very important. So like with layouts and scripts, adding and removing custom menu items are something that we really need to show somebody. You not only added a custom menu item, but it appears exactly here in the list. Yeah. So eventually the problem was that I wasn't paying close enough attention to the custom menu references and had to track them completely independently. So in the back end, FM comparison actually tracks four different things. Custom menu sets, custom menus, custom menu items, and custom menu references. And then has to figure out how to show you the organization based upon all of that stuff. I've got one outstanding thing there that I've got to figure out what to do with. And that's custom menu items that are separators. So the nice little horizontal rule, I just found this one last night, nice little horizontal rule that shows in a, a drop-down menu. And in all the other big categories that we're working with, separators are basically dumb items. Mm-hmm. You tell it it's a separator, and you tell it where it appears in the list, and you're done. And so... I don't specifically call out creation or deletion of layout separators, except in the organization view. So when, I sh- when I'm showing you how you o- reorganized your list of layouts, that's where I'll show you a created or deleted separator. Mm-hmm. But it's not a, cre- a created, you know, it's not, it's not a top level item that we're normally worried about. However, the custom menu item separators can also have logic applied to them. So if I make, if I have a block of say five menu items and I make all of those menu items logically disappear, I can also make the separator that broke them off disappear. So I'm not left with three separators in a row that aren't doing anything. Hmm. At which point these things can have more change about them than just their existence and where they are in the list. They can actually have real logic tied to them, which may actually mean that I need a, I may have to add a sidebar category element for custom menu item separators. No, I don't think so. I think it's enough to just add a property to the JSON to show like visibility for the separator. Um, well, but the visibility can be a calculation string. You calculatorily mm-hmm. define whether the thing shows up or not. And so then we've got two of them side by side. Like we could maybe do it with a tooltip, but we haven't even done tooltips in this section. I don't want to add it at this point. My yeah. guess is what probably needs to happen is when I'm clicking on the custom menu items list, the separators need to show up there, mm-hmm. even though they're technically a different category. Um, we'll combine two categories into one, and so you'd see all the custom menu items with their separators that have changed there. Yeah, whatever's the easiest and least amount of work, because this is custom menus we're talking about. Isn't it? <laughs> Not well used feature in FileMaker. Yeah, the the people who use it use it a lot, and everybody almost, else doesn't even think about it. Just like we have FM comparison as a separate product from FM perception, we should almost make FM custom menus a separate product. <laughs> like just, this is just for here for the people who need it. <laughs> the people who really need it are very insulted right now, Joe. Um, but uh, yeah, the the I, I've poured way more time into custom menu management mm-hmm. than it deserves. 
Yeah, just like the iPad version of retrospective timelines, of which I think I am the only user. <laughs> yeah. Lots there's of a, people have it on the phone. I think I'm the only one with it on an iPad. There's there's a point in the project where you can start to care about truth rather than whether it's a good idea or not. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's make it a great product and put in a fantastic feature even if nobody ever sees it. And it's not always a good use of time. So yes, I want to find the simple answer. I think it'll be pretty straightforward to just add the custom menu item separators to the custom menu item list. Um, but I won't know for sure until I try because we don't have any place else in the system where we're combining two categories into one display. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know if that's going to do something funny. We'll, we'll find out pretty soon. So yeah, that's one of the things on, on the next list. So it was all of a piece. So yeah, that's been my fun. By the way, Joe, happy birthday. Oh yeah. So yesterday marks the five years anniversaries from when I started my own company. Radical application development. Congratulations. And uh, it's kind of a silly anniversary because I, you know, started the company, made the decision, but didn't actually get to do anything for like another month and a half. Like, you know, I registered a domain name and started the paperwork with the state, but I still had like six weeks of work to do for my current job at the time. But uh, yeah, it was five years ago and I wanted to do kind of a quick recap of where I was five years ago and what I've worked on and learned since then and mm-hmm. kind of what the type of work I'm doing now. Mainly in service of like, if we have other FileMaker developers listening to this who tell themselves, I can't really do anything other than FileMaker development because it's all too hard. Like this segment is hopefully going to dissuade you of that notion. Um, cause I, I, there was definitely a point in my kind of development life where I thought the same thing of like, you know, I can do this file maker development stuff. It's just point and click. It's, you know, it's, it's no code stuff. It's super easy. Like this really easy stuff compared to quote real programming. And that's just mm-hmm. not the case. The, the real stuff that we do is solving problems. Like the consulting aspect of what we do is far more difficult than writing code in just about anything that I can think of with a couple small exceptions. Um, so when I started five years ago, I had a couple years of experience as a FileMaker developer. I think I was certified in versions 11 through 15 or shortly to be certified in version 15. And I think I'd had about three and a half years of experience doing FileMaker work. And before that, no experience whatsoever with computers or even in the professional world at all. I worked, you know, other kind of much crappier jobs. Um, when I started my my company, one of my ambitions was to, you know, kind of use my FileMaker skills as a way to pay the bills while I learned how to make iOS apps. That was kind of my main focus at the time. And it took about a year and a half of me spending way too much time on tutorials and not really making progress. And I started and stopped at, you know, a dozen or more projects um, throughout 2015 and 2016 before I got to SpriteKit in the fall of 2016. And that's when I made, that's a, it's basically one of Apple's game engines. They've got essentially two game engines, SpriteKit for 2D games and SceneKit for 3D games and 3D uh, scene kits extended into ARKit as well. Um, so I made my first, or I guess I shipped my first iOS app, which was a game called Random Arrow using SpriteKit. So this was, I think it, around this time it was, we were up to Swift 3, either Swift 2 or 3 is what I was writing this in. So I had finally found something that I thought was interesting enough to work at and was achievable. And I had previously given up a lot of my ideas for building iOS apps because 
I kept running into problems with how am I going to handle data? Because I kept thinking about everything from a, a database standpoint. And mm-hmm. core data was really compelling, but also really complicated and a lot to wrap my head around. And CloudKit was still relatively new and there was no really documented way to make CloudKit and core data work together. And I was trying to avoid having massive server costs. I don't, I don't want stewardship of other people's data. I want <laughs> people to have their own data, um, which is one of the really great selling points of CloudKit is like when you make a, a CloudKit with private containers, that just never counts against my quota of CloudKit. If I use public containers, it does. But when you download retrospective timelines today and you put, I don't care if you put 100,000 records into it, it just doesn't affect me. The app may perform horribly, but it doesn't affect my quota or server usage or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I kept, you know, at the time I was running into all kinds of limitations, of just not being able to understand how any of that stuff works. And I think Dave is the one that pointed me to a Ray Wunderlich book on SpriteKit. And like, why don't you check this out? And I did that book and decided to make a really simple game which was probably one of the better things I've done in my career. Not the game itself, but the development experience of, I gave myself six weeks to, you know, from initial idea to this thing has to be in the app store and done. Like I was working backwards from a deadline. And that that process, like I wasn't working on anything else as well at that point. I had another project looming, which was the deadline, this other massive project coming mm. my way. But I had six weeks of free time to work on one thing and one thing only with just nothing else going on. So I was able to really throw myself into Swift and learn everything I could about game development and SpriteKit and all the Chrome around shipping that type of app and you know the process of setting up an Apple developer account and submitting an app to the store and you know creating a website for all this stuff. Um, it ended up being a really good experience and a really big confidence boosting experience because I was able to basically show myself like when you really get down to it, you can learn other stuff that's far more complicated than this FileMaker thing. And that kind of led me into a path of much more aggressive sales on my consulting side where, you know, previously I would have said, oh, you know, this needs a web app. Well, maybe we can use WebDirect but it's going to be really expensive or maybe we'll have to hire somebody else. And I stopped saying those things and I just said, well, I'll build it in BHP. Like that's, that was kind of my next platform. Like, well, I, if I learned SpriteKit in six weeks and I can learn PHP while I'm selling the project. So I essentially sold, you know, a $45,000 project in PHP without ever having written a line of PHP. And then <laughs> the miraculous thing is I delivered that product and it's still up and running today. And it still serves a ton of people. That's the same product that we were talking about earlier, where I just replaced the uh, custom web publishing API for the new data API. And those skills that I learned with PHP have let me do all kinds of fun stuff with WordPress, which is built on PHP, extending WordPress themes and adding custom logic to sites. And I've done a number of projects there, as well as just being able to have my own website and side projects as like between WordPress and PHP, this this kind of super easy to understand toolkit of stuff where I can just throw the stuff out there um, in pretty short order. So some of the other areas that I worked in, the Random Arrow game was kind of a career digression into game development because it was like, I kind of found this thing that I could do that I never had to worry about other people's data. And I decided to get more and more into game development. And that's when Dave started talking about virtual reality. And we went to a, we didn't go to a VR meetup. We went to a game dev meetup here in Columbus and they were doing some VR demos. And I got curious enough to basically take a look at the market and see, can I make, can I make a go as a VR developer instead of an iOS game developer? And this was around, this was just after the consumer launch of VR. So I think Vive and Rift had launched maybe eight months earlier. PSVR was only out for a couple of months at this point. Oculus Touch had just shipped. So this was, you know, early 2017. Um, 
I was still working on that big PHP project and kind of learning what I could about VR in the background and buying way too many VR headsets and computers. And at some point, I you know kind of waffled back and forth between uh, Unity and Unreal Engine. And towards the end of that spring, I, just, I decided to settle on Unreal, Unreal Engine and spent a couple months learning everything I could about it. And I made lots of little demo projects and wrote a lot of C++ and basically did enough in Unreal Engine to realize I don't want to work in Unreal Engine. <laughs> like it's it's complicated. Um, there are some really great things there. I don't ever want to write C++ again. Just full stop. I'm not interested. Mm. I would rather not make a project than make it in C++. And around that point, I started looking at C Sharp and Unity and there's a kind of a trend between these things of me learning a bunch of stuff about something and then figuring out the kind of the limits of it of, or at least my perceived limits of like not wanting to push past a certain point and then kind of procrastinating by learning a new thing. And that's definitely mm-hmm. what happened with the transition from Unreal Engine to Unity of like, well, I'm never going to make my app here. So I'm going to go start from scratch and learn Unity. And, you know, kind of a similar thing played out. I made tons of demo projects in unity both vr projects and not i learned quite a bit about 3d rendering and 3d modeling in blender and i shipped kind of a a silly but fun vr bowling demo um, at our user group here in columbus and was working on all kinds of stuff up until about winter of 2019 and I had been working on several different ideas in parallel, trying to figure out what I wanted to ship. And it was around that point where I really started to give up on the idea of game development, not as something that's not worth doing, but I had learned enough about it to know what I was capable of as a solo developer and what it actually takes to make it a game of the quality that I wanted to make. And mm-hmm. I just I just can't bridge those gaps. So the type of experiences that I want to make, I can either make by myself for five years before having anything to ship, or I can start hiring people. And I just, I'm not willing to do either of those things. Um, I just don't really want to have employees. I don't really want to deal with subcontractors. I don't want to, I don't, I don't even want to deal with really partners because that's a, a whole other type of drama that I'm not really willing to introduce to my life. Mm-hmm. And I don't really want to work on the same thing for five years with no guarantee of getting paid. So around that point, I decided to, it was last spring, started to take another look at iOS apps and played with AR Kit for a while, did some really cool stuff there. And I still have a lot of stuff I want to do with AR Kit over the next couple of years, especially when we can start putting it on our face. But uh, at WWDC last year, Apple introduced Swift UI, which is incredible and fantastic. And they also made a way to integrate core data with CloudKit, which was kind of my biggest hurdle to making those types of apps. So I have no more excuse for that type of stuff. Um, <laughs> and I spent, you know, this is kind of where the this podcast starts last summer making retrospective timelines over basically between July and December is when I worked on the bulk of it. Um, there's still a lot of things that are wrong with Swift UI. Um, I'm not sure how many of those things have been solved in the new version. I just haven't had time to work with it yet. I'm hoping to do that in August. Um, but it definitely seems like Swift UI is a great future for app development. And I also was thinking the other day, if and when Apple finally ships their AR headset, it's not going to be a new framework for how to make user interfaces. It's going to be Swift UI with a new option of how that Swift UI stuff is rendered onto the headset. So I I think it's a really good investment to keep learning now, even though I'm probably not going to make much money off of my app or any of the other ideas I do. I'm doing this with the kind of the promise of being there and, and knowing how to make AR apps as you know, maybe not day one, but as early as possible and being able to have that as a valuable skill, whether that's 
I don't know if I'll ever pursue success trying to ship consumer apps or if I'll just keep turning these into skills that I can do as a consultant. Probably the latter after five years of trying to ship viable products and, and just not, not necessarily failing, but just not pushing through to do anything about them. Um, and I think like the biggest drawback is I'm just not going to do the marketing stuff. Like I, I can make a list of all the stuff I'm going to do for marketing, but I'm just not going to do it. And I know that because I've got that list and I've just not done it for six months. Um, so that's probably a really compelling reason for me to keep focusing on consulting stuff because it's it's guaranteed income and mm -hmm. the other stuff isn't. So the last couple of things I'm learning are things that are much more consultant based. So Vue.js on the project with Dave has been a really awesome thing to add to my toolkit. I think I wrote more JavaScript in the first week of this project than I had my entire career up until that point. <laughs> Because um, really, I use just tiny bits of JavaScript to add functionality to a UI control, but for the most part, everything else was you know kind of a static page. Um, and also, A-Frame and WebXR. So these are WebXR is a standard built into the browsers, and A-Frame is a framework that I'm using that works with 3JS and the WebXR APIs to build AR and VR headsets or AR and VR experiences that you can run in the browser, both in and out of the headset. So that's my list. Um, WordPress, PHP, C++, and Unreal Engine, C-Sharp and Unity, 3D modeling and Blender, Swift, ARKit, SpriteKit, SwiftUI, Vue.js, and A-Frame. And I'm five still years. doing FileMaker. <laughs> yeah, five years, and still doing some FileMaker in, in there. Yeah. Considerably less FileMaker, but uh, if I can learn how to make stuff in those things, then I don't think anybody else has an excuse for not learning how to make a widget in JavaScript. <laughs> the um, the big thing for me when I'm trying to pick up a new tech that I really want to use is blocking out one week. Mm -hmm. for full immersion yeah where i don't do the other things that i'm used to as much as humanly possible i spend the entire week running you know one big book of tutorials i, I like for this kind of learning i like books or in some cases a an extended video series but something that has been not constructed as a series of small disconnected things but as kind of one person's guided tour through a set of technology mm -hmm. and spending an entire week doing it almost universally at the end of the week, I either know a, I don't want to touch this ever again. And it usually takes less than that to figure that part out. Um, B I now understand enough about this that I can be more self-guided in my future learning. Mm -hmm. Like, I know now how to ask questions on Google or Stack Overflow. I know the language that I need for search criteria. Um, when somebody says, oh, just do X, Y, and Z, 85% of that makes sense to me, even if I don't know exactly how to do it. I understand the words that they're saying, and now I just need to do some additional searching and learn a little more about a specific thing, but... At the end of that week, I'm basically ready to start poking at something and trying to build something. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's really the thing is if there's something you want to learn, carve out a week. You know, convince the boss, whatever, and jump into it with both feet. You you won't die. Yeah. <laughs> you You may not find at the end that you enjoy it. The first day is a little rough and then pieces start falling together and you know you there's the the little uh additional exercises at the end of the chapter and you start cranking through those and you're like i i kind of get this like it's a small piece of a much bigger thing but i get how this piece works cool let's move on to the next thing and there's lots of neat there's challenges but then successes during that learning process 
Um, you can spend a lot of time failing when you're only dedicating half an hour or 45 minutes each time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, the other big piece of advice is when working in other environments, like as FileMaker developers, we know there is no, there's no right way to do something in FileMaker. There are lots and lots of ways to solve every problem. And the same is true in other languages, other environments. Don't, get obsessed with the right way. That was definitely my big, big problem in 2015 and 2016 with with uh, the CloudKit stuff and the core data stuff. It's like I was so obsessed with trying to find the correct way to, to architect this app that I just never got anything done with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's way more important, like does the app compile? <laughs> That's way more important. Does it run? Does it do what you want it to do? Don't worry about the architecture. Like I, I, I'm not an adherent to protocol-based programming or any of the recent buzzwords around Swift and all that type of stuff. Like my Swift UI code is sloppy and there are files with 40 levels of indentation and I don't care because the file builds. <laughs> like I have a big <laughs> screen. I, I can see all the indentation I need to. <clears throat> so yeah. Or my, uh, my 5,000 line Swift classes. Yeah, exactly. Like, sure, well, it's it's fun to joke around, but it works. Like, yeah, it works exceptionally well. 